Chapter Four of the Motor Pirate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Shreya, The Motor Pirate by George Sidney Paternoster. Chapter Four, concerning my rival. Now, Jim, dip your beak into that and let me see if it will not restore. To your classic features, their customary repose. So saying, Winter handed me a stately tumbler, and the mixture was so much to my liking that I felt an involuntary relaxation of my facial muscles. Immediately, I obeyed the command. I stretched myself at length in the easy chair which I had drawn up before the fire, and felt able to forgive even the motor pirate. We were alone in the apartment which Winter called his study, but since the only books he read therein. Were motor catalogues, and the lounges, with which the snuggery was furnished, were much more conducive to repose than to mental exertion. I refused to acknowledge its claim to the title. That, by the way, the fire was burning brightly. Winter's red rugged, honest face was beaming with almost equal radiance. Who could help feeling happy? Then Mannering was announced, and Mannering was a man. I had learned to passively dislike. Why I scarcely knew. I was aware of nothing against him. Indeed, when six months previously, on my first coming to St Albans, I had been introduced to him, I had been rather favourably impressed. He was a tall, dark man of thirty-five, with more than the average endowment of good looks. He could tell a good story, had shot big game in most parts of the world. Was well read, intelligent, possessed unexceptional manners, and yet, well, Winter had none of his various qualifications. But I would at any time far rather have wed one friend like Winter than a hundred like the other man. I had first made his acquaintance at Colonel Maitland's house, where I had found him on an apparently intimate footing. Perhaps it was this very intimacy which formed the basis for my dislike. For there is no need to mince matters. At this time, I was jealous. Horribly and unreasonably jealous of every male person who entered the colonel's house, and here perhaps it will be better for me to explain how it happened that I came to be living in a cottage on the outskirts of St Albans, in preference to my own house in Norfolk. The change in my residence had been entirely due to a tennis party at Cromer. There I met Evie Maitland. She was, no, everyone can fill in the blank. From their own experience for themselves, and if they cannot, I pity them. Fortunately, I had none present. She was the most amiable of aunts, and quite devoted towards her most dutiful nephew. With her assistance, I managed not only to improve my acquaintance with Miss Maitland, but also to effect an introduction to her father. I had only known them a week, however, before the Colonel took his daughter back to St Albans. I allowed an interval of a fortnight to elapse, and then I followed. Of course, I had to be prepared with some excuse, and here luck favored me. Looking towards the directory, I discovered that Winter, whom I knew slightly as having been up at Camford about the same time as myself, was also a resident in the delightful St Albans suburb of St Stephen's, where the Maitlands resided. I sought out Winter. I confided my story to him. The upshot of it all. Was that I took a cottage close to his house, and not far from the Colonel's, ostensibly that under Winter's tuition I might develop into a first-class motorist.
Somehow I found that I made a great deal more progress with my motoring than with my lovemaking. Surely a more bewitching, tantalizing, provoking little beauty than Eva Maitland never tore a man's heart to fragments. If she was kind to me one day, she would be still kinder to Mannering the next. But that is neither here nor there. Anyhow, I hardly wished him out of the way, for there was no doubt whatever that Randolph Mannering was a much more attractive person than my insignificant self. His mere advantage in age counted for something, but I could have forgiven him that, had he not made use of the years to see so much and do so much, that he could not help appearing in the light of a hero to a girl who was just at the worshipping age. And he knew so well how to get the fullest value out of his experiences. He never paraded them. I must admit that much in its favor. He was far too clever. An anecdote here and there to illustrate some point in the conversation, a modest account of some thrilling adventure in which he hardly ever mentioned the part he had personally played, produced a much greater effect than if he had gone about trumpeting the deeds he had done and the dangers he had survived. He had, too, the advantage of a much longer acquaintance with the Maitlands than myself. I learned from the colonel that Mannering had been living in a house whose garden adjoined his own for a year before my arrival on the scene. His life, until the colonel had recognized him as an acquaintance he had made at the house of a friend some years before, had been that of a recluse, the object of his retirement being to perfect some mechanical invention upon which he was engaged. He had soon developed into a friend of the family, and I found him firmly installed as such when I made my appearance at St. Albans. Naturally, then, I was none too pleased that Winter had proposed to take him into our confidence, but I made no absolute objection. I sat smoking quietly while Winter told the story of our adventure. He listened most attentively. It's a most extraordinary story, he remarked. When the narrative was concluded, You are quite sure neither of you have touched any of that port? Winter turned one of his pockets inside out with an expressive gesture. Wine may rob a man of his wits, he replied, but it does not relieve him of fifty pounds in notes, six in gold, a watch and chain worth fifty, and a diamond, which has been valued at a hundred. The numbers of the notes should enable you to trace the thief, said Mannering thoughtfully. Winter laughed. The fact is, I am such a careless beggar. I always carry notes about with me. Replenishing my case when necessary, and really I have nothing to tell me whether those notes I had in my possession were the last batch I had from the bank, or odd ones left over from previous consignments. They may have been in my case for months. Both Winter and I could identify our watches, I hazarded. Of course, replied Mannering. If your motor pirate is fool enough to attempt upon them, you may get the chance, but if he sells them to a receiver, they'll go straight into the melting pot. Winter lit a cigarette, and Mannering turned to me. What was the extent of your loss? Ten in gold, thirty in notes, and say thirty for my watch. My loss is comparatively light. You know the numbers of your notes, I suppose? He inquired, as he lit a cigarette in turn. Yes, I replied. I'm not quite so casual as Winter. There's some clue for the police to work upon, then. It might prove to be so. Only Winter thinks we should show up so badly in the whole affair that he won't hear my giving information. The fact is, said Winter, Maitland slept soundly through the whole affair, and it wouldn't be sporting to give him away. 
I see, began Mannering. Winter deftly changed the subject. What puzzles me, he said, is the kind of motor the fellow employed to propel his car. I know of nothing at present on the market, anything like so effective. I've seen them all. Your loss doesn't seem to trouble you much, anyhow, commented Mannering. I would willingly give a hundred times as much for a duplicate of that motor. I should be pretty sure to get my money back once I put it on the market. If there's all that value in it, why should the owner go in for a highway robbery? I asked. That's just what I fail to understand, said Winter. From what I could see of it, our friend the motor pirate is possessed of an ideal car, graceful in shape, making no noise, running with a minimum of vibration and a maximum of speed. Why, there's a fortune in it. Of course it is quite impossible that the motive power can be electricity, remarked Mannering, gazing into the fire as if he could see a solution of the mystery therein. Quite out of the question. Anyone who has the slightest knowledge of motoring would know it to be impossible, even if the pirate had devised a storage battery which would knock Edison's latest invention into a cocked hat. But supposing he had achieved the feat, remember that, According to the newspaper reports, he was at Plymouth yesterday at dusk, near Salisbury at eleven the same evening, and holding us up on the confines of St. Albans tonight. He would be bound to get his batteries recharged somewhere, and, with a car of such remarkable shape, how was he to do so without exciting remark? No, electricity is quite out of the question. I should be glad to think that the car was an electric one. His capture would only be a matter of a few hours. An indefinable expression, which might have been a smile, flitted across Mannering's face. I hope, for all our sakes, his motor is an electric one, he said. At all events, it should be not difficult to track a car of so singular a shape. If it were built on the same lines as yours or mine, for instance, the owner might go anywhere without attracting attention. Anyhow, I broke in, until he is captured, I'm going for a run every night with something that will shoot within easy reach. The next time I have the fortune to meet him, I hope I shall be in a position to get a bit of my own back. Again, a smile appeared on Mannering's face as he exclaimed, I almost feel inclined to follow your example. I had nearly forgotten how to use a pistol since I have resided in this law-ridden rand. Surely you won't expose your experimental car to the chance of being rammed by the motor pirate, remarked Winter, chaffingly. Mannering's car was a stock joke with us. It was a particularly cumbersome vehicle. With heaven only knows what type of body. It might have been capable of twenty miles an hour on the flat, but that would be the extreme limit of its powers. You fellows, he had explained to us one day, have taken to motoring for the fun of flying along the high roads at an illegal speed. I have taken to it for a more utilitarian purpose. I have my own ideas about the motor of the future, and I am working them out down here. My old caravan is heavy, perhaps, but I want a heavy car. It's most useful for testing tires, and that is one of the special points engaging my attention. Besides, in this car I am not tempted to get into trouble with the police. Twelve miles an hour is quite fast enough for all my purposes. Both Winter and myself had frequently asked him how he was progressing with his work but as he had never returned us any but the vaguest of answers, nor ever invited us into the workshop, which had once formed the stables of the house where he resided, we had thought 
that his story of being engaged in mechanical invention merely an excuse for getting rid of unpleasant visitors. I think we were both surprised when he answered Winter's shaft quite warmly. I should not at all mind exposing my car to any risk if I could get the opportunity to examine the motor pirate's car. If the truth must be told, from what I have seen of this car and what you have told me, I am rather inclined to think that whoever designed it has forestalled me in an idea which I had thought quite my own. I have long been working to produce a car which would run at least a hundred miles an hour without noise or perceptible vibration. Couldn't you get it completed in a week? interrupted Winter. We might have a most exciting chase after our friend. Manrick shook his head. I've been absolutely floored on one detail, and if that fellow has solved the problem, shrugging his shoulders, he rose and held out his hand to Winter. I followed his example. I had no idea that you had anything so important on the stocks, remarked Winter, as he accompanied us to the door. Nor would you have done so until you saw the perfect machine on the road, if it had not been for my chagrin at seeing that car tonight. Of course, I can count upon you both to say nothing of the matter. On condition that you do not refer to our adventure again, said I, laughing. Agreed, responded Mannering, as he smiled again. We both said good night to Winter, and in spite of our host's efforts to persuade us to stay for another peg, I followed Mannering out, declaring that I should never be able to face Miss Winter again if I kept him up any longer. I found Mannering standing at the gate, and I paused beside him to glance at the sky, across which one or two fleecy clouds were hurrying from the west. The moon, brilliant as earlier in the evening, now hung low down over the horizon. The breeze had freshened, and we could hear it whispering amongst the trees. We shall not be long without rain. If the pirate is still abroad, he will leave tracks, said Mannering. The beauty of the night held so much of appeal to me that I felt annoyed at the current of my thoughts being turned back to the topic. I answered shortly. My companion took no notice of my petulance. You have always thought I cared nothing for speed, he remarked, but you were mistaken. I thought I would keep my desires in the background until I had succeeded in perfecting a car which I knew would be impossible to outpace. I could not enter into competition with longer pursuits than my own, and if I had brought the fastest car in the market, somebody else would have brought one faster. But tonight, by Jove, how I envied that motor pirate. Imagine what the possession of that car means on a night like this, with the roads clear from John O'Groats to Land's End. Fancy flying onwards at a speed none have ever attempted. Can you not see the road unwinding before you like a reel of white ribbon? Hear the sweet musical drone of the wheels in your ears. He stopped abruptly. He must have observed my natural amazement at the intensity of feeling which his speech displayed, for he observed in a lighter tone. Not being motor pirates, however, the next best thing is, I suppose, to go to bed and dream that we are. He turned on his heel and strode away in one direction, while I went in the direction of my own home. But I was in no hurry to get there. The night was too delightful. In the few hours which had elapsed since we had sat down to dine, a change had come over the face of the land. I could feel the presence of spring in the air, and all the youth in me awoke. The creatures of the earth felt it too. 
In the silence of the night, I could hear the crackle of the buds as they cast off their winter coverings, hear the whisper of grass, which the countryman declares is the sound of growing blades, hear the murmur of all animate things as they rose to welcome the springtide. My own heart leapt up with a renewal of hope. I stood a while outside Colonel Maitland's door and breathed the pair that I might be my fortune to protect the fair inmate of the house from all harm through life. I strolled slowly to my own door, but I did not enter. Moonbeams beget love dreams when one is still in the twenties. Back again to the colonel's house, back once more to my own. In all probability I should have continued my solitary sentry go and my reverie until daybreak had not my thoughts been sharply recalled to earth. On reaching my own doorway for the fifth or sixth time, I had just turned when I saw a black shadow on the road opposite the Maitland's house. One glance was enough. It was the motor pirate again, and I began to count. One, two, the car passed me. Three, four, it had vanished round a turning of the road in the direction of St. Albans. Even what I had already experienced of the pirate had not prepared me for such an exhibition as this. What Mannering had said about the delight of flying along an open road at a hundred miles an hour recurred to me. I had not deemed it possible, but I paced the distance between the colonel's house and the bend where the strange car had passed out of sight. The distance was just about two hundred yards. The end bit covered as near as possible in four seconds. The car must have been traveling just about a hundred miles an hour. I went straight indoors to bed. I'm not ashamed to confess that I was not able to continue my dreams in comfort while pacing the road by the consideration of what would have happened to me had the motor pirate come along just two seconds before I happened to turn and see him. End of chapter 4